All right. So as we welcome you in here on this beautiful Easter Sunday, we are going to be turning to John chapter 20. So we're going to be taking a delay again from the completion of the acts of the Holy Spirit. Don't worry, we'll be finishing up chapter 28 next week. But we're going to turn our attention to the scripture and to the gospel of John. And this is important for us to understand why to take a delay. Why do we take last week and again this week to focus in upon the passion week of Jesus Christ? And one of the reasons is God found it very, very important. In fact, over 30% of the gospels themselves cover this final week in the life of Jesus which tells you if he put such a highlight on it, uh, maybe we should pay just a little bit of attention to it. And so we've taken this time to work through a Palm Sunday last week. We uh, looked at the crucifixion on Friday, and then today, looking at the glorious resurrection. Now, one of the things that I wanted to mention to you, and this is a catchphrase in the Calvary Chapel world, is that when we look at the Old Testament, that the Old, look at the Old Testament, that the Old Testament concealed is the New Testament revealed. And so what we're going to study through today, we see oftentimes this amazing symbolism and typology throughout the Old Testament that points back to Jesus. We talked about prophetic fulfillment last week with him coming triumphantly exactly to the day that he was predicted from Daniel chapter 9 last week on Palm Sunday. But then this week as we look at it, what we find is, uh, again, amazing symbolism throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament. And so the Lamb of God that was sent to take away the sin of the world, we see the fulfillment happening on the crucifixion night. There at the Feast of Passover, the Lamb that was to be slain, giving his life for the entire world, laying down everything for you and I. And so he was crucified there at Passover. But then we also note the amazing symbolism that ties into this is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, a request from Pilate to take the body of Christ, to dress him, prepare him for burial, and then put him in Joseph's own tomb. What Joseph didn't know is he wasn't going to need it for very long. And so they prepare the body, and as they do, they wrap him up in linen. Now, you might be wondering, where in the world am I going with this? Well, as they wrap him up in linen, when you look through your Old Testament, I know you guys love to study through, especially in Leviticus. I mean, it's exciting stuff there, right? But as you study through the Old Testament, what you'll find is uh, one time a year, the high priest would wear a linen garment. And it was the day of Yom Kippur, one of the fall feasts. And what it specifically meant was the day of atonement. It was the one day of the year that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, that special place in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple where the high priest was able to enter in, and he would take the blood of sacrifice, and he would offer it upon the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea was it was to atone for or to cover the sins of the people for that entire year. And yet, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs was never enough. And so year after year, the sacrifice would have to be repeated, and the high priest would go in wearing linens. He was to to go into the Holy of Holies, and yet, there was always this concern for the high priest. And that was, if God did not accept the sacrifice that was offered, uh, he would lose his life. And so what they would do for the high priest is they would tie a rope 
around his left leg so that if the high priest gets smacked down dead by the Holy Spirit coming into the Holy of Holies, they'd be able to drag the guy out because after that, ain't nobody wanting to go into the Holy of Holies to go get the guy's body. So they would pull the guy back out. But the point was that as he's there, if the sacrifice was not accepted, then what it also meant, not only did he lose his life, but the sins of the people were not atoned for, you see. The sacrifice wasn't accepted, then they were going to be still stuck and dead in their trespasses. And so what we see is now here's Jesus Christ. What Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says is that he is our great high priest. And now what we know is he has given his blood. He has sacrificed himself, laid himself out there upon the cross as the blood is now across the doorposts like it was for ancient Egypt, only this time it was the cross. And as he's given his life, here's the thing, as they place him in the tomb wrapped in linens, if he does not rise, understand the importance. We are all still stuck in our sins. He gave it all, and yet the resurrection is so key. What the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have time to read through your, your weekly Bible reading, I'd encourage you to read what Paul says about the crucifixion in chapter 15. But he makes this unbelievable argument about why the resurrection was so important and why it had to take place. And in verse 19, he says that if it was not for the resurrection, then you and I are all most pitiable. The reason is because this is the receipt the proof that the payment was accepted, you see. And so as the high priest, Jesus Christ, comes back out of the tomb, we now have atonement covering once and for all, not to be done annually, year after year, but one time for all, our sins are atoned for. And so with that being said, let's begin in uh, John chapter 20. We're going to pick up in verse 1. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went, to the tomb early. And while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so entering into the scene to begin with, we have Mary Magdalene. This is a lady that knew a thing or two about forgiveness. She, in fact, we're told, was delivered from seven demonic spirits. And so if you think you've done some living, you think you've seen some stuff, you probably don't hold a candle to Mary Magdalene. She had had an incredible, uh, awful experience, a very difficult life, and yet she was delivered from that sin by Jesus. And now here she is. She's up early in the morning, seeking him, seeking him out. In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17 This is what Solomon writes. He says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Here is Mary diligently seeking the Lord on this Sunday morning. And as she's seeking him, notice she does it early. I want to encourage you, if you're seeking the Lord, seek him early. Before the distractions of the day take place, before you check your email before the book of face. Oh, that book of face. It's so quick to distract us, right? And so I want to encourage you to seek him and seek him early before the distractions begin to happen. And so here is Mary. She's headed to the scene, and yet the the tomb, the stone is rolled away. And in verse 2, then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb 
and we do not know where they have laid him. And in verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. Now, a little note in Scripture in the Gospel of John. John never refers to himself by name. He only calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, which for a long time I thought was rather arrogant. Like, why would you call yourself the disciple whom Jesus loved? But what I think is as John is writing this gospel, uh, that w- that the account that took place probably in his early 20s, he's now in his 90s. Looking back on his life, I think he looks at all of his wrongs and his mistakes, and yet, what's his identity? His identity was as the disciple whom Jesus loved. No need to mention a name. And there's so many times in our culture that we suffer from this identity crisis. Who am I? What's my worth? What's my value? I'd encourage you to look to what John had to say. Because who I am is I'm just a disciple who Jesus loves. Name is going to come secondary. It doesn't matter as much as this simple truth that he was a disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, these two are very much the odd couple. For Peter, he's impetuous. He's quick-tempered. You know, right? He's the guy that lopped off the high priest servant's ears at the arrest of Jesus. I mean, he, this guy uh, was a, a bit of a wild man, and yet he's coming off of the biggest failure of his life. He's just denied Jesus three different times, even cursed that he did not know the man. He swore that he did not. And now here he is together with John, a contemplative guy, the apostle of love. And isn't it amazing how the Lord pairs people like this together because what Peter needed more than anything right now was someone to just love him. Just be there to come alongside the apostle Peter. And so here are these two. Mary Magdalene comes to them first. She finds them, and then in verse 4, so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Now, you have to love guys, right? I mean, here they are. They've just been told that Jesus is missing. John's now writing this down, but he wants to be sure to point out that as they were running, hey, I'm a little bit faster than Peter. I mean, I got there first. He's a little bit slow. Now, again, remembering what I talked to you about is that uh, John was probably the youngest disciple called, probably 17 years old when he was called by Jesus, so he would have been 20 at this point in time. And for Peter, he was known in uh, Christian history as the giant, a big man. And so no doubt John had a bit of an advantage, but the thing I want to note for especially you young people in here is what uh, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, is let no one despise you for your youth. Don't think because of your age as a number that you cannot be used in a mighty way by Christ Jesus because you most certainly can. You can be called at any point in time in your life, and yet here is John called at an early age. And so be encouraged in that, that you too can be called by him to work for him at an early age. Now verse 5, and he, speaking of John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there. And yet he did not go in. Here's John, the thoughtful one, the one to contemplate. He's looking at the scene. He peers in, and yet he did not step foot into the tomb. He's he's analyzing things. And then in verse 6, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. And so here's John, first one to the tomb, and then quick to follow up is Peter. No doubt, 
right? He's huffing and puffing. He's a big guy. He's chugging in there. He's not going to wait to analyze anything. Out of the way! And he bursts into the tomb. I want to see what's going on. So Peter wastes no time. He goes in there, and what does he find? He finds clothes of a dead man, linens laying off to the side. No longer does Jesus have any need of grave clothes. And by the way, if you are born again in here, I want to point this out, that you no longer need to wear the clothes of a dead man. What, that, what does that look like? Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. This is what Paul says to the church in Colossae. He says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And yet time and time again, what do we do? We try to pick up the clothes of a dead man. And then we wonder why they don't fit. We wonder why we're frustrated, like most of the things in my wardrobe. I don't know why my wife shrunk those things. How dare she? But they don't fit. And the reason is they weren't meant for you. Moving on in Colossians, what Paul says is, here are the clothes of a new creation. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. The clothes of a new creation is what we're challenged to put on. And so here, Peter sees the clothes of a dead man laying there where Jesus was laying, and yet what was not there, note with me, he makes mention of a handkerchief folded that was over the face of the Lord. That is something that I have read in this story so many times, and yet I did not note it until this week, is that Jesus Christ took the time to neatly fold up the handkerchief and lay it right there for Peter to see. And what I love about this is that he wasn't anxious. He wasn't in a hurry. And so often I find myself bothered, in a hurry, rushing around, trying to get stuff done. Even if it's stuff for the Lord, I got Jesus stuff to do, right? And, and then I think about this situation. I mean, here Christ has just been beaten and tortured and mocked and spit at, and now he's raised from the dead. I don't know about you, but I'd have something way different in my mind than uh, taking the time to fold up a handkerchief. I'm going to be a lot more like Al Pacino, right? I'm going to take a flamethrower to this place. That's at least how I'm going to act. Jesus didn't do that. He took his time, knowing he was going to accomplish exactly what the Father intended for him to accomplish. And so it is true for us, how we are called to be wearing our new clothes, taking our time not being anxious or worked up or bothered because what Christ has put before us, he's going to make sure we accomplish. I get to walk alongside him. I get to follow his lead, and yet he's going to do the work. Meekness is what that looks like. What uh, Matthew 5, verse 5, Jesus says is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness, by the way. It is power under control. He has got all the power of God, and yet he is fully uh, under control, fully surrendered, fully ready to go and just do the work of the Father. God bless him for that. So meekness is how we are called to be. Now, verse 8. Then the other disciple, 
who came to the tomb first, got to point that out again, went in also, and he saw and believed. And so here's John. He is now uh, taking the time. He's analyzed the situation. Peter's already gone in, and now he uh, goes in to follow. And what I want to point out for you in this particular section, once it pulls up, is that the word saw is actually used three different times, from verse 5 all the way to verse uh, 8. In the first time, you would, if just reading through this, it's going to look like in our English translation the exact same thing. And yet, if you dig a little bit deeper into the word, what you'll find is three different words were used in the Greek. In verse 5, he uses the word uh, blepo or blepo. It means to visibly see or to make eye contact. John was seeing the situation there in verse 5. He'd made eye contact. He was discerning what he was seeing. He was analyzing things. Now then, verse 6, as Peter goes in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. This word is the word thero in Greek. It's the same uh, word we get our word uh, theory from. And so what it means is to study something more carefully. At first, it was just analyzing what was happening. It, secondly, it was then theorizing what they were witnessing. And then the third word here in verse 8, the other disciple came in and went in also and saw and believed. It's the word ido. It's where we get our word idea from, and it means to obtain meaning. In the Brock Ashley version, it means, I get it. I'm starting to get it now. And then you think about how our relationship evolves with Jesus Christ. It's very much like this, isn't it? At first, it's just looking at, making eye contact, staring at the book. I'm staring at the book, and there's nothing coming out there at me. I want to encourage you to keep looking. Study more carefully. Theorize. But here's the thing, if it only stops at looking at and theorizing what I put on the screen, I'm very proud of this, by the way, uh, theorizing and hypothesizing become realizing. It, it will eventually get to the point where, okay, I get it. Now, for many of you, you've gone through the word, or if you've looked at it, or you've tried to read, and it's like, I just do not get it. My encouragement to you is keep looking. Keep seeking, keep knocking, continue to spend time in the Word. If you don't understand anything you read, get a Bible with a commentary. List, find someone you enjoy to listen to to help you understand Scripture. But the key point of this is keep looking because eventually the theorizing, the hypothesizing have to become realizing. It's got to have actual application in your life for it to have meaning. Now, in verse 9, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went away again to their homes. Now it's important to note you have to give these guys a little bit of a pass. Um, they didn't exactly have the New Testament. In fact, they were living the New Testament. So they hadn't read all the book. But God was beginning to open things up. He was giving them revelation here. Jesus was revealing himself to them. Now verse 11, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus lay. Finally, Mary, in her grief, she, she peers into the tomb, and what she sees there is the slab where Jesus had laid. No doubt, still blood sprinkled upon it. And then at the head and at the foot, an angel in white. Now, going back to Old Testament references, understand what she's witnessing is the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark with the cherubim on 
the head and the cherubim on the foot. And there in between is what is known as the mercy seat. And that story about Yom Kippur, this is the very place that the priest would put the blood of sacrifice upon. It was called the propitiation or the mercy seat, the payment that turned away wrath. And what John would write in 1 John is that Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He is not only our high priest, but he is also the payment that turned away wrath for you and I. And as Mary peers in, she probably didn't even understand what she was witnessing, but she saw the very symbol of the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> now, verse 13. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. As I was reading through this, a word that stuck out to me that I would encourage you if you're a highlighter of your Bible or an underliner, I promise it's not blasphemy to underline your Bible. It'll be okay. I underlined the word my. It was personal for Mary. She wasn't looking for just any old savior or any old teacher. She was looking for her Lord. I am looking for my Lord. Her focus was solely and totally on Jesus. I mean, think about what she's witnessed. Two angels in white. And, and throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New, when angels appear, people have this tendency to want to fall down and worship them. And the angels are always quick to go, oh, don't worship us. Point it back to the Father. Don't do that. And yet Mary, she wasn't focused on being angelic at all. She was focused upon one thing and one thing only, and that was her Savior, my Jesus. Now, verse 14. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And so Mary Again, focusing on Jesus, she turns away from two angelic beings, which I think is just fascinating. She just turns away like, enough of you, I'm focused on Jesus. And as she turns away, there he is. But in her tears and in her grief and in her depression and in all of her anxiety that's inside of her, she does not recognize her Savior because he didn't appear like she expected. And then I wondered, how often do I miss Jesus? because he wasn't like I expected him to be. He didn't show up in the way I thought he was going to show up. He didn't show up in the person that I thought was going to speak to me. He didn't, he didn't come in a way that I thought he was going to come, and yet more often than not, what you'll find in your, in your journey with Christ is that he appears in the unexpected. He appears in the person to give you a word that you didn't expect or the situation you thought blindsided you. In this spot, Jesus appeared in a way that she did not expect and she didn't even recognize it. Ladies, he can even appear to you through your husband. I know, that's crazy, right? He can even speak to you that way. That's how miraculous the Lord can be. And yet he, he can in ways that we do not expect, in situations that we don't see coming. Now, verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. 
And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. So what she recognized was his voice. John chapter 10 verse 4 says that my sheep know my voice. Do you know the voice of your Savior? And so she knew Jesus' voice very well, and she cried out to him. She clung to him, but he was quick to say, look, don't cling to me right here and right now. I've got something way better for you in store. I want to encourage you not to cling to the things of this earth. We are so quick to want to cling to things, and yet what Jesus has for us is something so much better. Something so much more grand is what he's trying to tell her. I've got way better in store for you, Mary, and now here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to take this word. I want you to take the good news, the gospel message, and I want you to take it back to my brethren. Now, I think it's fascinating to point out that in that day, the rabbis and the teachers taught that it would have been better for the uh, Hebrew Bible, their Torah, to have been burnt than to have been given into the hands of a woman. Isn't that amazing? Yet what does Jesus do? He starts with a woman. He gives the word to a woman, and he says, go and tell. Why? Because he knew, ladies, you are not going to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) That's a joke. Don't. You can write any kind of hate mail to hatemail at woodlawnchapel.org. That's not even a real email address. But nevertheless, what he probably knew is that a guy was liable to forget, right? They're probably going to go off doing something else and forget completely. Well, was I supposed to tell somebody? Oh, yeah, good news. Oh, Jesus is risen. He tells her to go and to seek out, I love this, my brethren. Now, remember, the last time Jesus spent time with these guys, they all just scattered. They all just bailed on him. He doesn't say, I want you to go back and find those boneheads that bailed on me. That pack of losers that left me there on the cross by myself, that denied me. I want you to go find those guys. No. He personalizes it and says, I want you to go find my brothers. Not my servants, not my pals, but my brothers. And this is what he commands them to do. So why in the world would he give this message to Mary Magdalene of all people. I mean, a formerly demon-possessed, living all the wrong ways lady. Why would she be the one? And I would tell you, it's out of love. What did Mary say to Jesus? That if you just tell me where he is, I, will, I would carry him back. I would take him back. She was seeking what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things. She was willing to bear the body of Jesus. She loved him so much. And so it wasn't that she had a degree in theology or biblical studies. It wasn't that she had read through the Bible 50 times and studied everything. It was simply that she loved Jesus. This is the reason she was given that charge. Now, verse 18. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples uh, that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. In verse 19, Then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Here's Jesus standing right there in their midst. And what's his word for them? 
It's not to chastise them. It's not to remind them of all their failures and all the ways they've tripped up in their life. It's not to give them the whole, this is your life in review, all the ways you've goofed this thing up. Instead, what he says is, shalom, shalom, peace. Now, how in the world, in light of what all these guys have done, can they possibly have peace? I mean, how does this even make sense? You know, what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, is this. If I can find Romans. I lost Romans. I found it. Romans 5, verse 1 says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How can they have peace? Because he is there to justify them. It's a big word, justification by faith. What it simply means, at least in my words, is just as if I'd never sinned. The reason that he could tell them peace, shalom, is because he'd already paid the price. He'd already justified them. They were completely justified by faith in him. They had peace with God through justification, just as if they'd never sinned. Now, verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so the question is, how can these guys be justified? It's because what Romans chapter 3 says is that Jesus is both the just and the justifier. Nothing that they had done was just whatsoever, and yet Jesus was just. They could not be justified on their own, and yet he was the just and the justifier, the author and the finisher of our faith is what Hebrews says. And so as he's standing there as the just and the justifier, they were glad. Let me ask you this. Are you glad today? Because Jesus is in our midst, whether you realize it or not. He is your justification. Everything you possibly need to be right with him is right here in this room. Does it make you glad? Does it give a little bit of a skip in your step? That's the reason for us to assemble, right? The reason the world doesn't want us to assemble is because it doesn't want us to be glad. Satan wants us to be all disrupted. And yet here we are on this beautiful Easter Sunday gathered together with the just and with the justifier. Does it make you glad? Now in verse 21, so Jesus said to them, peace to you. There he is again, shalom. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. In verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, New life. New life was born in these disciples. These men who were so terrified of what might happen to them, they begin to have new life. And at this point, it's the first time the Holy Spirit enters into them. It's actually the first time we see this relationship with the Holy Spirit at any point in time in Scripture. Jesus gave them a heads up that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit in them. And here, as he is now resurrected, he breathes and gives them the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, there were many times where the Spirit was alongside. That's the first relationship with the Spirit. The word in the Greek is 
para. He is paired with us. He is speaking to us, trying to communicate, point us back to our need for a savior. This is every human being. Until we eventually deny him to the point where he leaves us alone, we all have this relationship that we know things are not right and we need a savior. And yet, upon accepting him as our savior, he then is good to come into us, that second relationship with the Holy Spirit, and live with us and in us. Now, the third relationship we looked at in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you and give you great power there. That's that third relationship, the baptism or the, in, the, the overpowering of the Holy Spirit. This is the, the, the type that gives you great power. Dunamos is the word in Greek, dynamite power. But right now, they receive new life. And the word for him breathing into them in Hebrew is ruach. He breathed the ruach. And in the Greek, it's the word pneuma. It's the same place we get our word pneumatic or air from. It, it's the same word as wind or breath or spirit. He breathes his spirit into them. And the first time we see this being breathed into mankind is all the way back at the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 2. This is before the fall. And here in verse 7, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, the ruach of life. And man became a living being in perfect harmony with God until they traded life, the breath of life in for death at the fall. That happens in the next chapter. So from that point on, mankind has been living in a spot of being disconnected from God, no longer to be in perfect community or fellowship with our Heavenly Father until right here in this spot and the breath of life being breathed into mankind again. The Holy Spirit coming into them and new life taking place. Jesus tried to explain this concept to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, destined to die, in other words. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, destined to live. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind, the ruach, it blows where it wishes. And so the only way to tell where the wind blows is by its effects. And so the question is today as we head down the home stretch, how do you know the Holy Spirit is in you? What are the effects in your life? Do you see his effects? Do you see the, the, that the wind, that the breath of life has actually come through you and is dealing with you in your life? Now, oftentimes what will happen in our lives is we'll have a, what C.H. Spurgeon calls a, a spiritual spasm. It usually happens as a, a kid or at a revival. We have kind of the, whoa, right? Like the Holy Spirit came on me. But then quickly we brush it off. And far too often we attribute that as, as, well, I've been saved. And I'm afraid that time and time again there are many people that gather together in churches all over this country and all over the world that because of a spiritual spasm, thinking they have been saved, are going to end up busting the gates of hell wide open. Because when you look at their lives, there is no proof that the wind has ever touched any piece of their life. Now when you think about it practically, 
what the wind looks like in our lives, when you think about physical wind, oftentimes it can blow things completely away, right? And we think about the destructive path of a tornado or, or a straight line wind. And yet as I think about uh, our lives, especially as you've lived a little bit and in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and your 50s and on, what happens is we start to accumulate the cars in the front yard, right? Like the junk cars, I got a transmission in the living room. I got, you know, I got stuff piled all over the backyard. This is what our lives look like. And what we need is the Holy Spirit, the breath of the Spirit, the Ruach to come through and blow all that away, to start fresh again, to have a new opportunity at a new life. This is the effects of the wind in your life. And I want to encourage you, if you have never seen an actual change take place, if you've never seen the effects of the wind in your life where things are different than what they ever were before, where you see things different, where you talk different, where you live differently, then you have not had the Ruach, the Numa, blow through your life. But that can change. It can change today with just one simple request. Lord, would you come into my heart? Lord, would you come and, and blow away what I've let accumulate in the front yard and in the backyard and in the living room? I need the breath of life to blow through me. It's become stagnant. So I want to encourage you, if you've never experienced that, to experience that today. Today is the day of salvation. Now, for the rest of you, you've had the pneuma in your life. You've had the, the breath of the Spirit blow in, and yet the car started piling up again. We need a fresh wind, a fresh fire of the Spirit to burn up all the things, all the chaff, all the wood, hay, and stubble that we've let accumulate all around us. I want to encourage you to pray like that as well. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to pray for the Holy Spirit to indwell in you, to show through you, and to affect those all around you. And by the way, to the people that you come into contact with, your life's going to look different. People are going to wonder what's changed about you. Why do you, why do you act so different? Why do things look so different? And the reason is because of the Holy Spirit. And it's not a temporary thing. That's an eternal thing. And so for here, for these men gathered in this room, in this time, for them gathered there together, they were saved for all of eternity. You understand? The, the down payment had been put on their life. The Holy Spirit was in them. They were already secured. So then why didn't Jesus take them home? If they were already secured, why are they still there? It's so that others can see how their life has changed. So when you wonder if you've experienced the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and he's set you permanently, what Paul says is that you've been seated at the right hand of the Father hidden in Christ. If that's your spot, and then you begin to wonder, why am I still here? What am I still doing here? What purpose does he have for me in my life? It's not for you, it's for others. It's so people around you can see a changed life. They can learn from your experience. You can share and speak into them. It's not all about you, sweetheart. That's what my wife often reminds me. It's not all about us. It's about others. And so this is the eternal promise we have. Being able to be secured, 
knowing there's no need for anxiety and worry any longer, and yet now to be able to freely and openly share with others what the powerful wind of the Spirit can do for each one of us. Now, one last thing to note. On May the 15th, I didn't mention this in the announcements, but uh, decided to have a baptismal service. Have no idea if anybody's going to get baptized here or not. I'm going to fill that tub up behind me, and if nobody wants to get baptized, that's okay. I'm just going to drain it, and the city of Charleston gets a few bucks. They probably need the money. So we're going we're gonna to do that, and I want to encourage you to, to pray through, do I want to identify with Jesus or not? It doesn't matter if you've been baptized before. There's no rules that say you can only be baptized once to identify with Christ. I was baptized when I was six and again when I was 36. I think oftentimes we can be rebaptized to rededicate or maybe for the first time to show that this is an outward sign of an inward change. I want to identify with Jesus. I want to encourage you guys to pray through that if you'd want to see that kind of thing happen for you. It's one of those blowing through your life, the Ruach of the Spirit changing moments, a milestone marker in your life. So be encouraged to pray through that. And happy Easter. And so, Father God, we thank you and we praise you for the wind of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us in the spot where we can just stay the same, muddling through the same old ordinary life, wondering what is it you have for me. But instead we can be supercharged by the indwelling and then the overpowering of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for loving us enough to not leave us in that spot, but to be willing to come and blow off all the old things in our life. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to put on new clothes of a new man or woman, as it were. Lord, we thank you that we get to shed those things off to be done with that. Lord, it is so painful to continually want to dig up those clothes and put them on. Thank you for giving us the courage to put them off to the side once and for all. Lord Jesus, please continue to work in the hearts and the minds of your people. And lastly, Lord, for those who have accepted you a long time ago, and wondering, why do you still have me here, Lord? Give us that fresh wind, that fresh reminder that it's so that we can be an example of a changed life, of the power of the Spirit that can operate in us and confound the world at large. Lord, we need your presence. We need your Spirit. We thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's all stand for a closing song. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my turn. Till I met you I was breathing but not alive All my failures I tried to hide 
it was mine too Till I met you You called my name You called my name And I ran out of that grave Out of the darkness To your glorious day You called my name And I ran out of that grave Out of the darkness my soul now your freedom is all that I know the old make new Jesus when I met you you called my name and I ran out of that grave out of the darkness to your glorious day, you called my name, and I ran out of that grave. Out of the darkness to your glorious day, I needed rescue. My sin was heavy, the chains break at the weight of your glory. I need a shelter, I was an orphan, but you call me a citizen of heaven. When I was broken, you were my healing, now your love is the air that I'm breathing. I have a future, my eyes are open, cause when you call my name, God's people said amen amen thank you guys well, thank you all uh, for coming he is risen that's the good news right and so as you feel the spirit start to churn things up in you don't lose hold of that feeling allow him to continue to blow the breath of life into your life throughout the week throughout the months we look so forward to seeing you guys again God bless you enjoy your friends and family today God bless